The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Do not march on Moscow. That's what Montgomery said was rule one on page one of the Book of War. And Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner mercenaries, didn't get more than halfway when he tried it. Napoleon and Hitler could have told him. But what was that extraordinary episode all about? What does it tell us about the Putin regime? Is Russia's president now fatally weakened? And what are Russians being told about it? And most importantly, could it now bring the end of the Ukraine war a bit closer? That's this week on The Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So, look, you, Roger, you are obviously the scholar here amongst us. I mean, that is obvious to anyone who's a regular listener to this podcast. So tell me <laughs> tell me about the uh, the history of Ukraine. Obviously, it came about through oh, the gosh. dissolution of the Soviet Union. But who determined uh, Well, the, kind who, of, kind of. I mean, you know, historically, there was a kind of Ukrainian proto-state even before yeah. Russia existed, if you want to go back a very long way. Well, in the, um, in the, in the Russian Civil War, they were, they were fighting for independence of Ukraine, you know, in the early part yeah. of the 19th century, weren't they? The, so, that, well, well, yeah. Again, mixed up a bit. I mean, the early part of the 20th century, you had the Russian Civil the War, and then, yeah. then you had um, effectively when the Russian Empire broke up to some extent, you had areas like Ukraine that were temporarily independent, but they were overwhelmed by the Bolsheviks mm. uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and that, I mean, you know, without going back into the far reaches of history, I think that's where we have to look at it. But, but, but the point is really that we are now in a situation where Russia invaded Ukraine, as we all know. But, um, but Putin's point is that mm. parts of it. Obviously, he believes crime, you know, I mean, he wants all of it. Obviously, he wants everything to go back to, to the whole Soviet era. Uh, but, you know, if he wasn't to get that, I guess he'd say, well, Crimea is definitely ours and the Donbass region. So, I mean, what? why is he determining those regions in particular as being areas, uh, you know, ha- how were the borders determined when we saw that uh, that dissolution of the Soviet Union? Well, they were based on the old republics. The Soviet Union, as it was, was a a group of Soviet socialist republics, hence Mm. the USSR name. And and that was the republics as the lines drawn up that was the basis uh, of the areas that went independent, of course, in the early 1990s, Belarus being, of course, another one, um, on that basis. And they decided they wanted to walk away. Now, what Putin is doing. I mean, it may reach a lot further back than the Soviet Union. Many people think he actually sees himself as a sort of descendant of of Peter the Great and and trying to carry on that, which is effectively restoring the Russian Empire. But we don't, we we can't really peer inside his mind, I think, and get the ideas that are going there, except in as much as to say that he is determined to win this war. But at the moment, it's looking very much as if he isn't. Don't forget, it's more than a year now that this has been going on, and the quick war did not finish the way he intended it. And we are are now in 2023 at a point where, well, maybe an inflection point, because things are clearly under great pressure back at home. And that, of course, brings us to what happened uh, with the Wagner group. I mean, a really very extraordinary moment. Yeah. And yet we've not seen too much in the way of consequence beyond that, have we? And whenever I read comments from people within Russia, there seems to be almost a uh, sort of like an antipathy towards it all, as though, I mean, either people are scared to speak out so they just get on with their lives, or they, you know, they're older and they believe that perhaps Putin is doing the right thing. You, you begin to wonder, like in the West, we think, oh, there must be supporters within Russia. And maybe there are, but then I wonder how many ardent supporters there are. And there's others who say, oh, well, this is politics best avoided. Let's just get on with our life. Well, hopefully we'll get a sense of that when, when we speak to our guests in just a moment. But I think the, the real problem is that don't forget, many of these people have grown up in the Soviet Union. And yeah. the idea that you don't, you know, whatever you say, say nothing was a general principle. It was a good way mm. of 
avoiding being, well, in, back in Stalin's era, of course, getting a bullet in the back of the head, but later on getting detained or imprisoned or put in a psychiatric hospital. All kinds of things like that went on to suppress dissent. So most people, mm. I think, there still have a kind of feeling that actually the best thing is not to get involved. So the truth yeah. is, I don't think we know what people think. Yeah, and un- understandable that Ukraine, who's obviously away from that control, are far more nationalistic. And of course, during, during the Stalin era, a lot of them uh, died because yeah, it was, yeah, was the horrendous famine. There was a, oh, yeah. uh, an engineered famine in the 1930s, the Holodomir, which uh, still rankles a lot with a lot of Ukrainians, of course, and is in part mm. maybe what informs their desire very much to stay away. Uh, from yeah. Russian control. But, but you know, this is a huge area, a huge sort of thing to, to look at. And I think what we want to try and look at today is what is the effect of what's happened uh, in terms of, of the Wagner uprising, if that's what it was, mutiny, putsch, whatever you want to mm. call it, didn't get anywhere. But what does it tell us about what's going on in Russia? Because the thing at the moment is you've got a, a kind of stalemate, perhaps the Ukrainian forces edging forward slightly on various fronts in the war itself. How long can either side sustain that? And now people are thinking, well, perhaps the Russians may be the weak party in this if they can't even keep their own military bodies under control. Right, we'll look at all of that this week. Now, look, how are you managing your money? Not just your money, of course, all your assets, your home, your investment portfolio, your pension. Are you getting the best return? Are you optimising your arrangements regarding tax, for example, for right now, but also what happens to your estate when you've gone? Are you sure you have it all planned out correctly or does it all need a good looking at from someone who knows what they're doing? Well, if so, then talk to the folks at Wigmore Associates because they can help with all of that. They are a boutique wealth management firm. They've been helping people out for decades they can help you too if you give them a call on 0207 224 3400 that's 0207 224 3400 or visit wigmore-associates.co.uk they are proud supporters of the YKF that's why we're here they week keep, after week they keep us going they're, they're, what, they're what put us on air which we're very grateful for but uh, let's bring in let's bring in someone now to talk then about really what is going on inside Russia uh, you know the wilderness of mirrors as it uh, has been called in the past to find out what people are really thinking, if indeed one can peer that far in. Vera Tolzilik-Tenevich is a professor of Russian studies at Manchester University and joins us now. So, Vera, what what do you think happened with the Wagner mutiny, uh, if it was a mutiny? Well, I mean, what and if not, what was it really? Because it's, it seems a mystery, doesn't it? I mean, what brought it about in the first place and why did it end so quickly? There's so many unanswered questions around this. Uh, yeah, I, the, uh, that is, of course, um, the, the issue uh, it's an important question, but I'm not uh, the be- uh, basically very qualified to answer the question. And I don't think that very many academics actually uh, have sufficient information uh, to answer the question. We, uh, I, I don't even know to what extent um, um, intelligence services in the United States or United Kingdom are privy to ins and outs uh, of uh, what's going on inside the Kremlin and uh, the kind of wider um, Russian elite. Yeah, and Vera, but, I mean, obviously we're not... We're not clear on, as you say, it's all very, very murky. But in a way, is it possible to understand how something like this could have happened? Because it seems very strange. One can't imagine it really in, in any other country, I think. Uh, certainly not not an advanced country. No. Uh, it, the thing is that uh, it's obviously indicative of uh, the type of political system uh, which uh, Russia has developed under Vladimir Putin. Um, so how I kind of imagine the system is um, that uh, uh, Putin is... Uh, 
a kind of chief arbiter uh, between different uh, uh, groups, between different clans. And you can say it's kind of semi-mafia uh, clans uh, whose leaders, uh, Prigozhin was one, have their own interests. They kind of fight with each other. And Putin yeah, sort of uh, used to be able quite skillfully to arbitrate between them. Uh, uh, particularly under Putin, uh, but even in the 1990s already, uh, Russia, in a way, failed to develop uh, proper political institutions, uh, governmental, uh, institutional state institutional party um, uh, networks, which even existed in the Soviet period. So it's a, a really very personalized uh, kind of arrangement of uh, running the country. And uh, to be honest, I was not entirely surprised uh, that uh, in the context of the war, which put enormous strain on this system, uh, because the war is not going according to plan. They uh, clearly, the Russian political and uh, military leadership did not plan for a long-term war. They thought that Kiev will be taken within weeks, if not days. Um, and so that uh, within this system, uh, and in the context of war, the tensions between different political players and uh, kind of groups uh, around uh, specific political players, uh, tensions mounted, and that Putin is less and less able to control. That's the really interesting point, isn't it? I mean, how much is he in control, and is it less than it was before this? I believe uh, uh, that it is uh, the exposure of Putin's weakness and uh, the control will further deteriorate as a result of this mutiny. Uh, actually, most uh, commentators, uh, journalists, analysts, uh, and also from intelligence services, uh, we had various um, interventions from UK and uh, US intelligence services on the matter. They tend to think that it's um, kind of further undermines Putin's authority. I read only one interesting um, article and analysis by Anatoly Levin, uh, a leading British journalist, who thought that no, this uh, uh, the whole affair actually demonstrated Putin's strength. Um, and that's not how I see the situation, because it seems to me that in the system as it exists in Russia, which I kind of tried to describe to you before, uh, the leader can stay in power by uh, projecting a certain type of authority. And uh, in uh, this kind of, uh, this projection uh, should uh, include such features as if this leader, in this case Putin, publicly makes a threat to punish an individual uh, this dictator has to follow on this threat quickly to sustain uh, his legitimacy. 
on uh, the morning of the 24th of uh, uh, June, uh, in his uh, address to the nation in the context of the mutiny, Putin uh, said that uh, the, the leaders of the Wagner group, basically he didn't mention Prigozhin by name, but <clears throat> to an extent it was clear he meant Prigozhin, became traitors. And they will be punished uh, with a full force of law. By the end of the same day, it was announced that um, uh, criminal uh, procedures uh, against, uh, criminal case against uh, Prigozhin was dropped. So it was a complete turnaround, which is not, uh, it seems to me, uh, it's not good for Putin's legitimacy. So why? So, I mean, they were they were mates, weren't yeah. they? Basically. Yeah. So so is that is that it? Is he looking after a, a, an old friend? Is that what's happened here? Um, no, I, I doubt that. Uh, that's just a matter of personal, uh, simple personal relationship. Clearly, mm. I, I think to me it's an indication that uh, Putin. Uh, for some reason, needs Prigozhin. There have been mm. a lot of reports, of course, that Prigozhin looks after Putin's wealth, uh, which is kind of uh, kept somewhere outside Russia, including in Africa, where, of course, uh, Prigozhin managed to uh, build uh, his kind of military uh, forces yeah. as well as uh, his uh, media empire, and he has a lot of business interest um, on that continent. So you, so you talked about uh, sort of like you know he was trying to corral all these various components of, of government and and quasi government, all these different clans. I think was the expression you used, and trying to hold them all together. I mean, the, the, and that takes strong personality to to be able to do that. So. Do you think the war could actually have been part and parcel of this as well? That you know, if you've got a, a lot of uh, various components that aren't uh, seeing eye to eye, there's nothing like the distraction of a war to to create a unifying force. Could that be what created the the, the invasion in the first place? What created, I think, the invasion in the uh, first place is, yeah, obviously the. <laughs> Uh, to me, ultimately, the main reason um, for the war is that particularly Putin himself, but also members of his immediate entourage, thought that the war, which they expected to be quick, will be uh, yet another means of indefinitely staying in power. Uh, but they uh, obviously hugely miscalculated mm. Because it's a show of strength. Yeah, it's clearly become a show of weakness in a way. And I suppose that's the point there. We've got weakness in that he didn't win the war as quickly as he thought he would, but also that now perhaps Ukrainian forces are making advances. And in his own backyard, it seems, well, at the very least, there's indiscipline. How does that play out for him? Does he then make other moves? Does he try and do something radical or, or perhaps uh, vicious to try and establish himself as uh, as the man in power, still Stalin-like, or, or does he crumble? On the one hand, what I presume Putin will try to do is to use the situation uh, to uh, kind of tell uh, to the leaders of these different clans that, look, without me, um, 
Prigozhin would have taken Moscow, yeah? So without me, you will start basically killing each other and uh, there will be a full-fledged civil war uh, in um, Russia. So basically, you need me. I, I presume that would be his kind of narrative uh, to to the sort of top uh, elites. At the same time, um, I think with him or without him, uh, I think the chances that Russia will sink into a <clears throat> kind of chaos or a, a civil war uh, is very, very likely. And um, I think to me, it's only a matter of time before that happens. And I, I expect that there will be sort of another kind of some type of uh, a mutiny. Um from politicians or um, the security services, or even, you know, within the military, the military um, kind of generals and uh, other command, they don't like Shoigu, the defense minister. They think he's a fool, rightly. He's totally incompetent. <clears throat> he's not a, actually one of mm. them. So, so Vera, Vera just, just to interrupt you at that point, so you, you, so what you're saying is really very interesting. You think... That the, the the path towards a kind of disintegration or civil war is coming. Is it possible to get a sense of how long it will take? Because no, it's very difficult. But what I think that uh, obviously this Prigozhin's uh, mutiny it uh, uh, was um, kind of put down very quickly. Um, but I think something again, another mutiny, another disturbance um, will start. In, in due course, I, it's very difficult to predict uh, how quickly uh, I was uh, at a um, conference at a seminar uh, on Wednesday, uh, the 21st of June. Uh, and one of the speakers who is a very kind of eminent specialist on uh, Russia was saying, no, the system is completely stable. There won't be any disturbances. <laughs> and then uh, on uh, Saturday, uh, we had this. We had Prigozhin's mutiny. Uh, so it, it's difficult to say when, but uh, I think... <laughs> Again, don't hold me to it, but I think within the coming year there will be something else. And uh, um, at some point, uh, this will trigger uh, the breakdown, and then it will be very, very quick. So the whole thing will un unravel because there are no political institutions no. to hold the place together. So it would become a, a, a military uh, government that would, would which would take the place. It would be some sort of military overthrow. Uh, it could be military. It from could be from security services. Mm. It, it's not going to be kind of a liberal democratic uh, government because there is uh, none in waiting. All the kind of more liberal or. Will we oh, ever will we ever see that in our lifetime? I mean, is that what 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 are what are Russian people thinking about all this? Because I have to say, whenever I see glimpse anything at all from people being interviewed, and obviously it's it's pretty difficult in these times to to see that happen. But there's almost a, an antipathy I'm seeing from 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 Russian people as though you know, well, it's going on. They do, you know they're not going to say whether they support it or not. Some are obviously quite nationalistic and uh, and see it as a battle against the West. 
but a, a lot of people are just wanting to get on with their life and, and call it politics. And, you know, I don't get involved in politics. Is that a, quite a common attitude, do you think? Because, Vera, you've done quite a lot of research into the way that the media presents this to Russians and, and what Russian people think. So just give us a sense of what you think is going through Russian people's minds right now. Yeah, no, again, that's not easy to say because in the condition of war, it's uh, difficult to, in any country, let alone a dictatorship like Russia, to get reliable uh, opinion polls. And uh, even if you get reliable opinion polls, you don't know how long, let's say, after the war, the same attitudes will uh uh, play out, but um, roughly what kind of I gather. Sorry, what I gather from um, those people who try to uh, do uh, opinion surveys uh, in Russia at the moment, um, the number of people who kind of actively support the war is decreasing. Uh, but you still have close to half of the population or uh, who are either supporting or at least they're kind of trying not to think. They're trying kind of uh, to distance themselves but, uh, from it. But uh, the increasing number of people, and probably around half, are either very critical. I come myself from Russia. My circles are completely unrepresentative. Uh, I would say it's kind of very liberally Western-oriented academics, and uh, they are all against the war from the very beginning and, and against the Putin regime. But I very much appreciate that this is kind of a, a bubble in a of uh, kind of very specific circle. Well, I mean, obviously, obviously that attitude is being driven by what people are watching on TV and the fact that that is all controlled by the state or controlled yes. by Putin. Yes, the state media, you can't uh, obviously immediately conclude from the output, from the content of the media, uh, you, you can't conclude about what people think. But uh, it's little doubt that state-controlled media and television have been very much influencing uh, attitude of those people who consume it on a regular basis. And moreover, interestingly, that uh, even before the war, Whereas uh, a majority of people, so like 67%, were saying that they um, watched television at least every week, if not more often, uh, only 49% uh, said that they trusted television. Mm. So, Interesting. Uh, and yet, what again scholars demonstrate that even if uh, people who say they didn't trust television, still some of the propaganda sunk in and influenced their views. Which, which yeah. is why I, I wanted to ask you, Vera, what have what is the media, what have the state media been saying then about the Wagner mutiny? How can they present this? Yeah. What's the official line? Yeah, that, that's um, a, a very good question. So it's obviously evolved uh, from the 23rd of June, uh, when it all started, to 25th of uh, June, by which it finished, and uh, beyond. And in order in order to kind of make sense of uh, the coverage, 
uh, we um, should take into account the fact that whereas clearly state media, particularly television, uh, are controlled by um, the presidential administration, by the Kremlin, uh, it's a different type of relationship, a different type of censorship than in the Soviet period, because in the Soviet period, uh, the Soviet media system uh, existed and functioned kind of in isolation from the global uh, media sphere. Now, uh, um, and even though this isolation, of course, wasn't total, but now basically every Russian citizen who wants to has access to alternative media, despite all the bans. For instance, Telegram channel has multiple mm. oppositional um, uh, Telegram platform, social media platform, has multiple channels, including oppositional channels and including channels run by Prigozhin. Uh, and it is uh, on those channels that Prigozhin uh, put out on the 23rd of June a range of uh, videos with a very strong condemnation of the war and the reasons for the war and saying that the reasons given to Russian citizens by the leadership, he all blamed it on Shoigu, the defense minister, not on Putin, but uh, that he wasn't uh, uh, truthful. But on the whole, there was actually quite truthful presentation of how... Uh, and why uh, the government, uh, Russian government, began this war, uh, how there was absolutely no threat uh, of uh, Ukraine attacking Russia, as claimed by the Kremlin, and also how disastrously the, the war is going, partly because of a, a huge corruption. So how far Russia. would this actually have gone? It's on Telegram channels. Are you saying that, that actually quite a lot of Russians would have seen this and perhaps believe yes, it. Yes, quite a lot of Russians. Quite a lot of Russians would have seen it, uh, and certainly enough for the state media to have to cover the rebellion. Because in the Soviet period, something like that, particularly uh, wrapped up within a day, it wouldn't have been covered. Uh, it wouldn't have been such a rebellion, but there were disturbances in the Soviet period. They simply were not covered. Now they have to cover, and that presents a problem uh, for state media. And also, of course, another problem is that Wagner fighters were, have been, until the 23rd of June, presented as heroes. Yeah, uh, so you have to kind of deal um, with that uh, issue. And uh, what we see from the coverage is, of course, again, state control. And until uh, the Kremlin gave a kind of green light uh, to report certain things, uh, the state media uh, wouldn't say a word. It's uh, uh, in particular the state television. Uh, the main channel, Pierre Canal, uh, it's called the first channel, uh, put out the first report on the mutiny um, uh, uh, around 2 a.m. 
uh, on Saturday the 24th. So there was no coverage uh, on the 23rd. This was a few hours, just to give people context. This is a few hours, really, in about 12 or perhaps 24 hours since the whole thing began. And it was a very short report. There was no context given. And uh, it it kind of three points were made um, that um, the claims made clearly in Prigozhin's video about the Wagner troops being bombed by the Russian army was was not true, Uh, that uh, Wagner uh, fighters should not obey treacherous uh, demands of their leaders, uh, and that uh, the measures to detain Prigozhin uh, are being taken. So how important is public opinion in all of this? Because if you had, I think you said, you know, maybe it was as much as half and half between the people who are supporting the war and, and those who, who are against it. In the West, obviously, in that situation, there would be demonstrations in the streets. I mean, Britain was pulled apart on Brexit. Insignificant but compared to what we're talking about here. But, I mean, we're not hearing anything about, about public protest because we'd expect the regime would be overtaken by uh, the, the response from the public. But it seems like people are keeping themselves to themselves on this. If you are in opposition to it... You're quietly in opposition. Uh, no, that's actually not uh, sort of uh, if, uh, not how exactly I would have um, presented it. No. First, of course, the, then the coverage and the situation changed uh, on the twenty uh, fourth, and uh, of course, the subsequent line of the Kremlin was uh, and the state media was the, the whole society, all the people supported. Uh, Putin. This is, of course, was not the case because uh, again on Telegram channels you could see that there was a lot of warm welcome for Wagner fighters in Rostov, uh, which basically the city they uh, they took over, and that's a city. It's a large city. It's over a million people, and you had this warm welcome of Wagner troops in the streets. Again, uh, uh, Wagner and Prigozhin is an appalling force. Yes, it's uh, it's not that uh, these are some kind of um, um, great liberals who are coming to uh, free Russia from Putin. I know Prigozhin uh, is... Uh, um, uh, Just very destructive, uh, mm. appalling uh, um, leader. Uh, but uh, clearly, not the whole society um, was behind Putin on the twenty fourth uh, of uh, June, and there is an interesting sort of. Um, was an interesting article in a positional newspaper, uh, Medusa, which is uh, it's an opposition outlet, not just newspaper, based in uh, Riga, Rusafon um, outlet, and uh, they had kind of reactions, for, uh, including for, on social media channel of the Russians in Rostov, and some of them were saying that we are actually were happy bec- that at least something is happening. Yeah. Now, at the beginning of the war, what I I think should be stressed, at the beginning of the war, uh, uh, there were uh, demonstrations in uh, uh, the big cities. Uh, 
Uh, but uh, not only these demonstrations were dispersed by uh, very, very brutal force of the police, but people were threatened, a new legislation was introduced under which you could uh, get 15 years in prison. They, they were, they were uh, very I, brutally put down. I think we remember the pictures that were very strong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but Vera, yeah. Vera, what would the, you know, there are people who are against it, well, the people for it, but the average Joe, let's call him Ivan, in Moscow somewhere, or perhaps in, out in, in the country in Voronezh or, or anywhere, what would they actually now think? If you asked them and they sat down, what would they actually think is happening? Do they think this was just a, a small disturbance that was got rid of? Do they think that Putin is perhaps weakened? Do they Are they losing faith? What's, what sense do you got of what they actually feel now? Uh, I think that uh, obviously there will be a variety of, uh, of views, uh, but uh, certainly in big cities, uh, the people who kind of follow the situation, who are really giving some thought and have been giving some thought to what's going on uh, over the past year, uh, will see that uh, and will feel that uh, this is a sign of uh, the first sign of uh, the whole basically state unraveling. What do they do about that in a situation where there's clearly fear and people in opposition uh, tend to have a predisposition for food poisoning or falling out of windows? I mean, how how does how do you how do you stand up against Putin? I guess if you unless you are another barbaric character who wants to create the same sort of regime. I think that uh, uh, again, you, you, probably uh, it will see kind of Putin falling and uh, the current network uh, of um, this uh, political military leadership unraveling. It won't necessarily be replaced by much better regime. Will be maybe will be re- replaced by a kind of similar. Um, authoritarian regime, which, however, might want to, for its own ends, stop the war. You, d- you don't see Navalny emerging from prison like a latter-day Mandela, then? I don't think so, no. Not not in the... No. Um, because uh, he doesn't really have um, a kind of sufficient sort of backing um, across, um, uh, across society. But if uh, Putin's weakness and the weakness of his entourage is exposed for a longer period of time than we saw during the mutiny. There will be, I think, public um, kind of protest. Well, if you, yeah, if you go through a process where uh, it's it's revealed that you know the, you sold a law a lie as far as the war's concerned, mm-hmm. Putin disappears. You get another despot uh, who's in charge. Uh, and people recognise that the same thing's happening again. Even if the war finishes in in the process, you still have another authoritarian regime. Uh, people are, t- are taking a lot in at that stage, aren't they? We've been lied to. Uh, we are living under a dictatorship, and we don't have real government. How long will people put up with that for? I wonder. Yeah, again, it's um, also a lot depends on the kind of economic prosperity and stability. Uh, in big cities, because change of regimes don't happen in the countryside or small towns, they happen in big cities. And I know that on a lot of oppositional channels on Telegram, which I I, I look at, and uh, 
um, there are all these photographs of how desperate various um, villages and small provincial cities across um, Russia look. But in big cities from St. Petersburg and Moscow to Rostov, sort of over a million uh, cities, the kind of middle classes live still, even in the context of war, surprising, quite well. They have quite a lot to lose. And that's how, obviously, one of the ways in which Putin's regime has maintained its uh, legitimacy and its power, that it managed because of... um, Russia's sort of wealth in terms of uh, natural resources buy off quite significant groups of uh, people, particularly these middle classes in big cities who who, uh, really were in desperate situation in the 1990s, but then the regime kind of um, shared some of its spoils in terms of accumulating wealth uh, in the 2000s. But if the war destroys that economic prosperity, but let alone if there are indeed like Ukrainian drones, uh, I don't know whether it's uh, true or not that they the drones were kind of affecting flights from one of the main airports in Moscow. So if the war actually begins to very directly impact on the well-being of the uh, majority of the population in big cities, that could also lead to great instability. Vera, I know, I mean, historians hate parallels, I know. But I mean, when I'm listening to you, I'm talking about, well, a war that's not going very well, uh, chaos at home, uh, the, the working classes perhaps finding that they are getting poorer, not doing well, while perhaps seeing that the richer people are doing okay. Uh, it all sounds a bit 1916 to me. Is that a ridiculous parallel to draw? No, 1916, 17. And, and now that was the context of the World War, uh, where it was the first uh, historically total war, meaning that the whole kind of society was directly involved uh, in the war. Uh, this is now not a total war. Yeah. So the situation in that sense is uh, somewhat uh, different, but I, 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 there are parallels. It's it's a war which is not going uh, it's not going well. As long as as it's uh, going on, there is a, a chance that it will have an increasing impact on uh, kind of the life of average people in big cities in Russia. And you have a highly unstable uh, elite, uh, which uh, is a network of personalized kind of relationship between kind of uh, leaders of Matiozi clans and no political institution. Uh, So... Uh, there could be an unraveling of the whole state structure, I I think. And in that sense, there would be a parallel to 1917 when the whole state structure collapsed. Right. But it seems to be that you're saying that if so long as people in the big cities are feeling they have a a decent standard of living, not too much is going to change. 
Yes, yes, that that uh, I think is the case. So one, one final question before we go, because we do have to go now. Unfortunately, I feel like we could talk to you all day because you provided so many useful insights, Vera. But I mean, you've been quite uh, quite candid. I mean, do you get worried about talking out against the the Russian? I mean, even though you know you're at Manchester University, do you get worried about talking out against the the, the Russian regime? No, I do. I'm not. I'm not kind of significant enough. <laughs> Person, I don't have Russian citizenship. Uh, no, I, I'm not worried. But what I want to say that uh, I do have friends in Russia uh, who are extremely candid and uh, who put things on social media, uh, which are very open. I involved in some other activities uh, on individual basis, uh, kind of protesting against what's going on and um, do you worry for those I'm, friends who are doing that I'm worried for them yeah. and uh, it's e- interesting how I'm reluctant to uh, raise issues when talking to them but uh, they themselves volunteer the the kind of information and again that's and uh, volunteer the to articulate their positions. And that, again, is quite different from the Soviet times, because as I said, I left in 1982. So I remember, yeah, telephone conversations before Gorbachev came to power with my friends back in Russia, and they were very, very kind of careful as to what they said or didn't say. Well, you'll be pleased to know, Vera, the the, the YKV audience isn't big enough to, to raise your profile to a point where it becomes dangerous. But, <laughs> no, no, it's getting <laughs> there. It's, it's getting great there. to talk to you. Vera, yes. thank you so much for doing that. Uh, really interesting insights into, well, what could happen, as you say, maybe within mm. the next year in Russia. Um, we will see, and uh, no doubt we'll come back to talk to you if we, if we get an insight on whether it is indeed 1916. But I, I take on board some parallels don't work, but it was great to talk Thanks to you. Thanks for your time, Vera. Thank you. I hope uh, it was okay. <laughs> More than okay. Thanks very much, Vera. So there, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Uh, and it could all be kicking off over the next year. Look, you do wonder, you say, either the last place in the world you'd want to live. Well, obviously Ukraine's not a great place right now, but living living in Russia, living under this regime. Well, yes, in Indeed, but I suppose you could also... It's even worse than living in England. Well, there we are, yes. Another another UK, Ukraine, but UK is perhaps, well, obviously in a much, much better position than Ukraine. But the fact is that our economy, and people seem to think this right across the whole political spectrum at the moment, is not where it should be, and is so much worse than the rest of our partners in the G7. Well, our inflation, I mean, in many other parts of the world, they're saying they're seeing inflation now has peaked and is coming down. Our core inflation is still going up. Uh, It's likely that the OECD is going to revise their forecasts and we're going to see a a, a negative uh, growth figure. In other words, a recession for the UK, whereas most other parts of the world, perhaps Europe won't get away without it. Germany's already got one, but But, I mean, it's it's something that you need a recession just to bring down inflation. What does that say about how the economy is being managed? Yeah, well, it's a a lot, doesn't it, really? I mean, to actually say to people, yes, you've got to be worse off. And then, of course, with that comes the whole rich-poor gap, because obviously the poor are feeling this more than yeah. the, uh, the the top end of society. So, and that The great, banks are doing rather well at the moment. The banks are doing incredibly well, yep, uh, making big profits, because they basically, it's all upside for them. They higher interest rates, uh, the cost of lending out money, which they Why? create. Why has it happened? That's the question, because we, we all came out of the COVID pandemic roughly the same time. Yeah. 
uh, why is Britain doing so badly? Well, That's really the next question we want to well, ask. Well, do you want to answer now, or should we save it till next week? I mean, uh, let's save it till next week. Okay, let's find somebody who know what they're talking about. <laughs> to talk about too. You don't want me to offer my opinion ahead of time. All right, no, we'll leave it. We to will th- hear it in due course. <laughs> we'll hear it next week. That's next week on the Waco. Uh, why is Britain the basket case? It is compared to the rest of the world. We are doing much worse than just about everywhere else. Uh, that's next week on the Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. Thanks for listening this week. See you next week. The Y Curve.